I am Patrick Yeos, National President of Fraternal Order Police. This is The Blue View. Welcome. Thank you for joining us for the Blue View podcast. I appreciate you coming in and, and spend some time with us to talk about some issues that are really important, uh, you know, in enforcement of, of narcotics across the country. But before we dive into all of this, can you tell us just a little bit about yourself? Yeah. Um, so first of all, thank you so much for having me. Um, second and most importantly, I am a New Jersey native, born and bred, a Jersey girl. And uh, I grew up in central New Jersey and I come from a long line of police officers and teachers. And there was a point when, after I'd become a prosecutor in the Manhattan DA's office, which was really my first real job after law school, where someone said to me, of course you became a prosecutor. You come from a long line of, you know, police officers from South Amboy, New Jersey. And that was the first time I'd actually sort of thought about it in that way. But I've had the privilege to be a local prosecutor in Manhattan, um, to be a prosecutor at the United States Department of Justice, where I was involved in human trafficking cases, and then to being the state AG in New Jersey, where New Jersey is a unique place in many ways, including that the state AG oversees essentially the criminal justice system right. and oversight. We had a full group of investigators and prosecutors statewide. And also when I took over as the state AG, a prior AG had taken over, superseded the Camden, New Jersey Police Department. Yeah. So sort of day one, I was um, in charge of the most dangerous city in America. Yeah. And so, you know, my lens, which really started as a prosecution lens, really changed into, with an understanding of law enforcement, just that experience taught me so much about, about law enforcement. I'm still learning, um, but really gave me opportunity on the ground to work with the men and women who wear the badge and just really develop a great love and respect for what I think is is the most critical part of what we do, which is keeping people safe. You know, you uh, so you ran an agency that had roughly nine thousand. Yes. Uh, nine thousand uh, within New Jersey. Yes. Uh, and then probably some thirty thousand local law enforcement across the state. So it put you in a as a top law enforcement officer in the state. That progression from from being a prosecutor, you know, kind of a a family of public servants, uh, becoming a prosecutor, then on becoming attorney general for New Jersey, uh, and now the administrator of a, a DEA. How did that path help you for where you are today? Yeah, it's such a great question. So one of the things that happened when I became state AG and. I think about this a lot, which is, you know, all of us sort of coming up, we do cases, right? Like the unit is the investigation. It's, right. you know, what's the criminal organization or who are the suspects that we're targeting? And it's, it's where we have to be focused on that. That's how we're effective. When I became state AG and I saw sort of across the entire system, it was a different conversation or, or sort of thought in my head of, are we doing the cases that make us have the greatest impact? Like, where are we going? What's the touchdown, right? For Camden, the touchdown was how do we make the city safe? How do we stop it from being the most dangerous city in America? And it changes a little bit. You know, you're, you're so micro-focused. You have to be when you're doing a case, and it's right. But as a leader, the real question is, you know, what is the goal? Where are you trying to go? And are you doing the work and the investigations to get you there? And so that switch, I think, in New Jersey has helped me a lot. I mean, DEA, we're 10,000 people. We're in 334 offices around the world. Yeah. And so thinking about every day, you know, one of the first things I did was just ask this question of what's our touchdown? What's the goal, right? Yeah. And obviously, you and I will talk about this a lot today, but in 2023, it's how do we save lives by stopping Americans from dying from fentanyl? Absolutely. And how do we stop the two cartels in Mexico that are responsible for the fentanyl that's coming into the U.S.? And how do we reduce violence in our communities? And so drug-related violence. So a lot of this is 
really that training has helped me to sort of be able to step back and say, okay, what's the impact we want to have? What's the plan we need to make? And then how do we execute on that? You know, it's so there are so many facets of what we're talking about, but the drugs in the United States, how it's affecting really, there's no one immune to it. Uh, every single sector, every single race, every single economic level is affected by narcotics. What, what do you see as the state of, uh, of drug use and drug, uh, drug trafficking in the United States right now? Where do we really need to dial down uh, yeah. and, and make a meaningful difference? It's, make it's meaningful such difference? a great, like, this is such a great point, Pat, because it is everywhere. And so no one's immune. No one is immune. No community is immune. No state is immune. And we see this suburban, rural, urban. We see it with all the police departments we work with, all the sheriff's departments. And again, it's every, it's, fentanyl doesn't discriminate in any way. Neither does methamphetamine. And what we've seen the cartels do is really figure out how to get into every single part of the United States of America. So coming back to your question about, you know, drugs today, I don't think... I, in my career, I started doing narcotics cases in the Manhattan DA's office. The world has changed so much since then. When I was doing every minute, every minute, uh, every minute, completely. And and part of what I think we're seeing now is that starting in 2014, 2015, these two cartels in Mexico, Sinaloa and Jalisco, they started to harness globalization and the modern world, and they began sort of making these chemical drugs, synthetic drugs, we call them. They're man-made. They're not coming from plants like cocaine or, you know, traditionally heroin and other drugs just, just were plant-based. So there were growing cycles. There were all kinds of conditions that had to be in place. And there were sort of limits, sometimes geographically, sometimes because of transportation, that were on top of, of those systems. That's all gone. So now we face a situation where the only limit is the amount of chemicals today that the cartels can buy from China, which is the place that's mostly producing and sourcing the chemicals. So it's a vastly different world. Fentanyl is 50 times more powerful than heroin. And so what you and I are talking about is totally different than what I experienced when I was an assistant DA. And what's, I think, most important as you and I think about this, are two things. One is, I think that this is the greatest national security threat to our country today. And you're talking about 107,735 American lives lost between August of 21 and August of 2022. That is devastating and catastrophic. And it doesn't even begin to include the number of people who had a drug poisoning and were treated with naloxone by a police officer or an EMT and survived. So right. we're talking about just devastation in communities that, um, and it's the leading cause of death right now between the ages of 18 and 45. So I don't, I think all of us sort of have to be thinking about how do we put all hands on deck to combat this threat? And we're doing everything we can, but we know that all of us have to be working together because this is, an, this is the greatest drug threat I think we've ever faced as a country. And I think for all of us, you know, part of our challenge is how do we get the information out to our state and local partners? How do we all work together on this? How do we all have the information also for public awareness? Like people still don't understand that fake pill that's being sold on Snapchat yeah. as an oxycodone is actually fentanyl and it can kill you and, and there's no second chance. Yeah. Yeah. Now, and, and you know, one thing I, I know in 36 years of law enforcement, I, I just, uh, I guess the realization that uh, that drug usage, uh, the drug the drug trade, affects every aspect of our communities. Yeah. 
Yes. I mean, from, from you know, and I, I just kind of blown away to see some of the people that you think have their, their stuff together and, you know, financially and everything and just see how it is totally destroyed families. I've watched, you know, I've watched parents of really good families just crying because of their kids finding their way into to this destructive path. I've watched people who saw no future, uh, same thing, take, trying to, you know, this escape with, with, with drugs and it didn't matter who we talked about. It didn't, and, and that segment, it, it affected every one of them. But one thing I, I you know, uh, you know, you, you touched on it and I, I want to go back and I, I do want to come back to fentanyl because it is such a, such a, you know, that, that is, that is our challenge today. But another challenge we have is, is the constant changing of chemicals yes. in the makeup of these things yes. and the regulation of these things and how we're always seem to be a little bit behind you know, behind trying to figure out how to address these things. Talk about how these, you know, the use of availability of the, these, these drugs, but I, just the constant changing elements of it. Yeah. When we define, you know, by law, when we define what's illegal uh, and constantly shifting the, the chemicals. How, uh, talk a little bit about yeah, that. Yeah, it's, it's, um, it's a great question. And I want to come back to sort of also just some of what you talked about. We can come back a little bit, but talking about, you know, supply and demand, because I right. think that this is an important part of the conversation, because I think the cartels have changed this and they're driving both supply and demand now. But talking about the chemicals. So one of the things we've done, I've been in my role almost two years. It'll be two years at the end of June. And one of the things we've done is sort of change. Look, we have to transform because the, yeah. the cartels have completely changed the way they do business since 2014, 2015, when they started doing synthetic drugs. They also, you know, they operate a lot by crypto, a lot by using encrypted apps. And they're really, they're doing everything they can and, and they're nimble and they're moving very quickly. And so we have to transform the way we work to be, to be nimble, to also be challenging and fighting the entire supply chain. So when I came in, we were very focused on high value targets. Who are the leaders of those cartels? That's important. But as you and I sit here, we know the DEA did a lot of work around El Chapo, was successful in investigating him. He was prosecuted. He's in a U.S. federal prison for the rest of his life. And then his sons took over the Chapitos. They took over the Sinaloa cartel. So if we don't work across the network, I don't think we can stop this thread. So what we've now done is say, okay, where does this network start? Right now it starts in China with precursor chemical companies and these chemical brokers. One of the things we've just done in a network investigation we did against the Chapitos, the sons of El Chapo, we charged 28 people, including four Chinese nationals and a chemical broker from Guatemala who was responsible for working with those companies to get those chemicals to Mexico. So the first thing we have to do is really be relentless in doing that kind of work. And so we have many investigations right now into Chinese chemical companies, into the beginning of the supply chain. But then, Pat, we're working across the whole supply chain. The next is how, does that, how do those chemicals get to Mexico once they're in Mexico? Who's getting those chemicals to the cartels? Who's and again in the Chapitos, you see we charged all these parts of the supply chain. You know who's manufacturing, mass producing the fentanyl in Mexico? Who's pressing that fentanyl into fake pills? Who are the assassins and the security apparatus that keep the cartels in power? And then who's transporting it into the U.S.? And so we have to do every single part of this, starting with the chemicals. Now, to your point, and I think for all of us, 
I say all the time, like we're not going back to a world of plant-based drugs. Those drugs may continue, but we are really in the synthetic drug world. And the cartels have chemists that work for them. They have people who are trying to come up with new formulas every day to make fentanyl and other drugs. So this is what keeps us up at night. And we have a team that is tracking and working on emerging threats, both from operations and intelligence, because this is exactly where I think we all have to be really, you know, focused relentlessly right now. So what we've watched the cartels do even in the last couple of years is really simplify how they can make fentanyl. And so we're now able to track that real time. Whereas before I think we were sort of, um, I would just say we're now able to track it real time. Yeah. You know, you, you, it's interesting. I'm going to expand it a little bit, a little bit further. Uh, It's, it's a business. Uh, but it's, it's a, it's a, it's a highly yeah. sophisticated business. You talk about chemists and you, you talk about that constant evolution of changing synthetic drugs, but it's, it's even more than that. I mean, if you look at how many people are killed by fentanyl every year, why would anybody take it? So there's another part of this too. I mean, they were actually into marketing as well. Let's, let's talk about social media. Let's talk about the encryptions. Let's talk about the way the channels of which they, they're not satisfied yes. with just the normal flow of street drugs. What they're doing is they're highly sophisticated, even in their marketing. Yeah, so this, this is a really important part of the conversation. The cartels are actually driving demand right now. And, and what they're doing is, first, they started by trying to exploit the opioid epidemic in the United States that began with pills with with legitimate sort of doctor prescribed opioid prescriptions. So that's how the opioid epidemic starts in the United States. The cartels then switch to black tar heroin. They then realize, oh, we can make fentanyl that looks just like oxycodone, Xanax, Percocet, hydrocodone, Adderall. And so they, that's what they start doing. And they buy, I mean, it is it, your word of being sophisticated is, is correct, right? They buy the pill presses from China. They buy the dye molds from China. They buy the dyes to make the pills look exactly like they're the real thing. To the point, Pat, where our chemists, we run nine labs across the United States. Our chemists, by sight, cannot tell the difference between a real oxycodone and a fake oxycodone. And they're doing it intentionally with deliberate calculated treachery because what do the cartels want? They want to make billions of dollars, which they're doing, and they want to relentlessly expand. And so one way they've, they're doing this is by creating, building, producing, and then marketing these pills as though they were real. And so you then bring us to social media. Um, And before I get there, one thing I would just note is like, I came in and I read all the law enforcement sort of significant enforcement activity reports, right? I get them on a weekly basis. And what I was seeing is someone dying in Nebraska, someone dying in, in Iowa, someone dying in North Carolina. And for those communities, they might not have been understanding, like they feel almost alone or as though this is a discrete event in that community, a a tragedy. But what I was seeing as I looked at it is that they are all connected. And so we built a faces of fentanyl wall in the entranceway to our building, which is open to the public. And we asked people about a year ago, send us pictures of your loved ones. We now have more than 5,000 photos of people who died from fentanyl. And when you see it, you understand across the United States, this is all connected. And when you see it, what I could also walk down and, and show you, this is a young person who bought a pill on Snapchat. This is someone who bought a pill on Facebook Marketplace. This is someone who bought a pill on Instagram or TikTok. Social media is 
what we say is this is one of the things that has changed everything for drug trafficking because they're solving the last mile problem for the cartels. The cartels have to figure out how do they get that drug to someone in your community and the way they're doing it. And, and this is totally different from when I came up as a prosecutor in Manhattan. You know, when I came up, we all believed a dealer would never kill their customer, right? Because it was bad for business. There was a reputation. And even if the dealer wasn't the person doing the hand to hand, there was a connection, like a, a real personal connection. Social media takes all of that away. Yeah. There's no, you don't have to know the person and it's far more anonymous. And literally within three clicks, someone you've never met is supplying a fake pill and they're having someone you've never met deliver it to your door like Uber Eats. And that's why we're seeing this catastrophic loss of life. And it's also why the cartels don't care because there are hundreds of millions of Americans who use social media apps, it's volume. Yeah. right? And so they know, you know, one person in our community dies, they have another person that's literally on that same app that they can sell to that same day. And so this has changed completely how they operate. And it's one reason why it's so important that we defeat them because one of the things that came out of our network investigation is that the Chapitos, they tested part of their network. They tested fentanyl. They gave it to a man in Mexico who died and they sent that same batch to the United States. So they know it's deadly and it's going to kill people and they don't care. Yeah. You know, uh, look at the whole evolution of this, uh, how we got to this point. You know, it used to be where, you know, people would get addicted to opioids. Uh, we stopped and, and, you know, seriously, you know, impacted the ability to, to get opioids by, you know, systems that, that, you know, did accountability for doctors and in prescriptions. And so then heroin comes along to fill that void. People are just, you know, what you, what we find is a, is, is a population, a growing population that's addicted to, to narc narcotics. And, and it does touch everyone because they're looking for relief of pain or whatever. We've created this. Now we, now we look at, I said we created it. Our way of addressing uh, the, the, the growth of, of, of narcotics in this country uh, every time we address it, it seems they, they take a different avenue. And here we are, social media, and now it's in you know, our virtual world where, you know, it's where, where our, our narcotics are coming from. What are the uh, social media platforms doing to recognize the use of their platforms for this, uh, you know, for this activity? Social media is, we are deeply focused on social media. We have to stop this from being the last mile. And it's critical if we want to stop Americans from dying, we have to do this. We have to stop these drugs from being so widely available on social media. We've started these conversations. And then uh, in early April, the deputy attorney general had us and the president's Homeland Security Advisor in a room. She brought the social media companies together. And what she was really clear on saying is, this has to be zero tolerance. It has to be zero tolerance. Right now, if you look at the terms of service for a social media company, you know, the top zero tolerance things are child sexual exploitation and terrorism, which are yeah. incredibly important. Those should be zero tolerance. So, so should narcotics trafficking. And so her point to them is this has to be zero tolerance. We have to take these down and you need to start sending these leads to law enforcement. None of us are getting enough leads from the social media companies. And we've now done had hundreds of cases related to social media. We just did nationwide takedowns in partnership with uh, local law enforcement, police officers, sheriffs, um, state law enforcement. We arrested 3, 000, more than 3,000 people across the United States that are associates of the cartels. They're the ones who are selling on social media, who are putting fentanyl into our kids' hands, and like they're critically important that we target them. Almost basically about 80% of those cases, they're either involved social media or encrypted apps. So we're talking about 
almost 600 cases that involve social media, Snapchat, Instagram, Facebook, TikTok. And so we know this is a huge part of the problem and the social media companies know it's a huge part of the problem. And so we're saying to them, you have to act. We're continuing to talk, um, but we're not done yet. This has to, this has to get fixed. Otherwise, you know, we, we, we should do everything we can to make sure the public understands that these are fake pills. One pill can kill, never take anything that wasn't prescribed by your doctor. We also have to take them off of this wide availability on social media. That has to stop. Yeah, be socially responsible. I mean, they have a they have an obligation as well. Um, I know. Uh, you look across this country. You know, we you know we obviously we have our federal partners. Uh, they are members as well. Uh, but we also have local law enforcement that work part of task force across this country. Let's talk about the importance of having that relationship between local law enforcement and DEA uh, and how this is more global. And not, not, not global. All things are local, but they're all global as well when we're talking about the you know, distribution of narcotics. Um, talk about the importance, the importance of having those task force and the role it plays in, in combating uh, narcotics in this country. I mean, I, I could not say enough about this. We could not do the work we do if we didn't have the partnerships we have with state and local law enforcement. And part of the conversation, I think, for us um, and our membership, our, our sort of groups together, is how do we do even more? So yeah. every single day across the country, we are partnering. We're in 57 um, cities and counties right now related to drug-related violence and drug poisonings. We're, we're going into the police chiefs and the sheriffs and saying, how can we help you in your community? You know, who are the people you're targeting? And that's really important because state and locals often have the best on the ground information. What we have is the ability to access information worldwide. And we also have a lot of information that we already are tracking on people in communities who are associated with the cartels, who are engaged in drug poisonings or who we are actively investigating. So when you bring that together, it is a huge force multiplier. And in my view, it's the only way we're going to stop what's happening from happening. The other way we work really closely right now, a couple of other things I think are important and then open to sort of thoughts of how we do even more because my view is, I'll explain, but my view is like we have to get the right information into the hands of the men and women on the streets who are stopping people, who are stopping cars, who are sort of our first line of defense on all this stuff. Um, we also do something, we have something we call OD justice where what we say to local police departments and sheriff's departments is if someone dies from a drug poisoning or if they don't die, but if there's a drug poisoning in your community, call us and we'll tell you, we even have a checklist that we can circulate um, to everyone where we say, here's what we need to know when that happens. We want you to get into the phone of the victim if you can, as quickly as possible. We want to understand, was this Snapchat? Was this Instagram? Who's the dealer? And there's a great example right, right now in Washington, D.C. of one of these cases that we do with the local police department where our folks are able, a woman named Diamond Lynch was in her early twenties, just got promoted at work, was planning her son's first year old, you know, first birthday. And she gets a pill. She takes it. She thinks it's Percocet. She dies. It's fentanyl. Our team with the local PD was able to find the two people that sold that to her. They seized, you know, seven guns that were involved in 13 shootings they then are able to trace that pill back to the suppliers in Los Angeles. Our LA team was able to work on that, arrest those sources of supply who were communicating by Instagram, and then we are able to track it back to the Sinaloa cartel in Mexico. And that's the kind of work in partnership where, and now there's a significant federal prosecution of all those individuals as a death resulting 
investigation, and that will mean serious federal sentencing. Uh, and it also just means our ability to sort of see this entire supply chain and how those deadly pills are getting into our streets and, and on our social media apps, we're able to sort of pull that out together. Um, the last thing I want to say, which I think is really important and I spend a lot of time on, is how, you know, how we're using information at DEA and how do we share information. So we have now built at DEA these two counter threat teams. You know, my view is the greatest threat right now to Americans are these two cartels, the Sinaloa cartel and the Jalisco cartel. So we have pulled from across DEA agents, analysts, targeters, data scientists, chemists, financial experts. And we have groups of those folks on two teams, one devoted solely to defeating Sinaloa and one to defeating CJNG or Jalisco. They're pulling from every piece of information we have. They're sending lead and target packages out to our field and you know, soon to others, including global partners. Um, and we're taking that information and we're mapping. We've mapped more than 6,000 members, facilitators, and associates of those cartels in more than 47 countries. And we've mapped hundreds across the U.S. So we are already working with our state and local partners. But how do we do that in a way that makes sure that you know, any officer on the street that stops someone can understand whether or not we believe that person is a member of the cartel, how we work together on investigations. So as part of that, we run something called EPIC, which is located in El Paso, Texas. And that's one way that we interface with local police departments and sheriff's offices all the time. The number is 888-USE-EPIC. And any officer can get an account. All you have to do is be affiliated with a, you know, a law enforcement agency and we have a 24-hour watch. That means that 24-7 DEA has someone who will answer a call from the field and who basically will provide, we run a national um, LPR, license plate reader system. We give access to all of our DEA holdings, right? Information sharing and deconfliction. So we need to make that even more robust. And I think part of my sort of you know, goal for the next year is how do we do this even better to make sure we're working hand in hand because none of us alone can defeat can defeat the cartels. None of us can do this without one another. So how do we, you know, make sure everybody has the information they need to action it and that we start, you know, we're already, I think it's, we're already starting to take ground, but we need to take a lot more. Intelligence is, you know, that sharing of information is something that is so vitally important. I look at the evolution uh, over time and, and even 9-11 played a huge part in, in, a, in a sharing of information in the fact that we haven't done a very good job. We do a good job of getting intelligence. We don't have a good job. We haven't done a good job of getting it in the hands of the people that can be most impactful. Uh, it's somewhere along that pipeline. It's uh, it's it's bogged down and it's it's it falls in the hands of, of people and agencies that you know just don't share the information where it needs to. And it sounds like you've you've addressed that in, in much of what you you've talked about. Can you talk a little bit more about that and, and the need and, and the changes, the evolutions that you see that you've implemented to help that information flow uh, better to the to actual ones that can be most impactful in using it? I think it's such an important question, and I think you know one of the things I found when I when I came in is. All law enforcement agencies, all of us, you know, again, we're using information to make a case to do an investigation, and we're really focused on the one target or even the full network in front of us, yeah. and we're not thinking about the value that that might have to, you know, do some of the important work that we as an organization need to be doing globally. Number one, mapping the entire network of that cartel. So, you know, some of the people who might not be the focus of a current investigation should be the focus of tomorrow's investigation. And if we want to be proactive, we have to be tracking that. So we have to be able to map and target and really analyze that all that information. So we started really, you know, pretty early on saying, 
we have to go internally from need to know to everyone knows. And you and I both know that's hard because we've got incredible men and women out there. They're making cases. And so some of what you know, we've said is, look, we work as one DEA because the information in another field division might be essential for your case and vice versa. And it's our, all of us, we're working to save American lives, right? And if that's our top goal, we've got to share information. One thing I'll say, and again, I'm committed on this, which is how do we do this even better with our state and local partners? And how do we really, you know, increase the flow of information? And Something that happened, we did our first ever law enforcement summit a couple weeks ago during police yes. week, and we had your folks there, and a, a number of folks came from across the country. One of the things that was said to us that I had not heard before was, I can't remember if it was a police chief or a sheriff saying, what we need is an intelligence analyst. What we need is to someone in our area of responsibility who's pulling together our information so we can give that to you and we can take in information from you. Because we both know, you know, our agents are on the street every day. They're doing the enforcement work they need to be doing. And intelligence analysts are the ones sort of behind the scenes who are helping to connect those dots, helping to tell us, okay, these people are part of this network or they're not. So it was a real eye-opening moment for me of, you know, are we doing enough with our state and local partners to build that intelligence capacity? You know, we've built these counter threat teams at headquarters. We're now building them in our field divisions. So in 23 field divisions all across the United States, we're in all 50 states, um, how, you know, we're going to have people locally who are going to be able to sort of show okay, here's what's happening in this city. Here's what's happening in this rural county. Here are the people that we're looking at. And how do we make sure we're sharing that real time with the folks who are on the ground in those communities every single day along with us? So I think, you know, we're committed to this, Pat. would love to work with you and, and your folks on it. But I really think it is vital. Like we can't do the work we need to do for the American public unless we, we figure this out. Yeah, we uh we actually put together a committee of uh, people at work, uh, of our members that work in in uh, in drug enforcement and have a knowledge with it to 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 form that partnership, find ways to where we can expand out and uh, and do some more impactful things with that partnership with with local law enforcement, with the unions and and uh, and all. So I thank you for for the summit. Uh, I know our uh, our representative there was uh, was very pleased when he left and said there's some some exciting things coming and we look forward to being part of that. I want to back up a little bit. We talked about supply chain. Um, and, and I know from, from an enforcement side, there are a lot of ways that these, these, uh, these drugs are making it into the country. I mean, obviously, one everybody focuses on is the border, and we can't discredit the fact that it is coming across the border. But it also, it's also much bigger than that. It's our, our, our carriers, our, uh, our U.S. Postal Service, uh, you know, our, our, our uh, package delivery. Uh, it, it really is. <laughs> it's a it's a leaking sill is what it is. It's coming in from a lot of different ways. Can you talk a little bit about about that and, and some of the impact? Yes. Uh, the initiatives that we have to try and address the uh, just the, the, the multiple ways that these drugs are making it into the country. Yes. So this is a really important part of the conversation. And the border is an important part of the conversation. Uh, well, we did the Chapitos Network investigation. We did a speaking indictment. It's about 70 pages. And one of the things that we noted in that speaking indictment is we've alleged that the Chapitos are getting fentanyl into the United States by air, by land, by sea, by underground tunnel. Basically, 
for the cartels to make billions of dollars to really sell that fentanyl at, at a profit, they have to get it into the U.S. So they will stop at nothing to get it into the U.S. And the border is a big part of that conversation. And so are all the other folks you mentioned, you know, the United States Postal Service, we work closely with them. That is part of what they use, the common carriers, the freight forwarders. And so all of this is a part of the conversation, and it's a really important part of our enforcement work. What we are now doing is attacking every part of that supply chain, and that is a part of the supply chain. So, you know, again, we're not willing to cede any of this to the cartels because this is how I think we can be most effective at defeating them. But it's, you know, the chemicals from China to the productions in Mexico to a number of the folks we charged in the Chapitos were the transporters, the people who were responsible for getting it into the U.S. And we know there are stash houses along the border, particularly on the Mexico side. So these are really important parts of our enforcement work and our intelligence work. And again, we're going to keep doing every single part of this. And we also are going to stay focused on not just the border, but all the other ways that they're using, because, you know, we've got to, I think, be relentless on every single piece of this to make sure we're stopping it. Yeah. A lot of our members work in the uh, uh, mail distribution or package distribution at, at airports, uh, and they do their assessments. You know, they, they'll pull a certain amount of packages, pull through because they're flagged. But it, it really is just a small percentage. I mean, it, there's a lot of concerns of uh, doing too much enforcement and, 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 and hampering the, uh, the delivery, the timely delivery. But at the same time, we're missing a lot. Yeah, this is really important. And one of the things that we've seen and is important, again, you know, some of what we do is based on the old threats. And we have to be, you yeah. know, I think we've all got to get real time about what the current threats are and then be nimble to, to move with those new threats. Right. This is a part of it because, you know, to make fentanyl, fentanyl is tiny. It's essentially, you know, if you think about a, a pack of sugar or, you know, on your table at a restaurant, it's a few grains of that. It's the amount that would fit on the tip of a pencil is enough to kill someone. And so it's, that makes it easier to transport. It also means that the chemicals you need to make it can be shipped by airplane. They don't need to be shipped by boat. It means that you can put it in an envelope and send it by one of the common carriers or put it in the postal service. And so this is one reason why it is so devastating. And so this is the kind of conversation we have all all the time, which is, okay, we know it's changed and evolved. We have to evolve. What does that mean for postal? What does that mean for us? What does that mean for, you know, these shipments that are now going across the United States? And so I think, you know, you raise a really important point and it is a part of our focus. Every piece of that transportation line is something we're mapping right now. Every piece of it is something we have to understand. So we're not relying on just a random screening. We can't. We can't. We have to be able to have intelligence and understanding, and we have to figure out what are the right screenings, but also what is the right information we can have to help us disrupt all of that. Yeah. You know, uh, we'll go ahead and wrap it up, but uh, the damage done to society today because of fentanyl, and, and not just fentanyl, other drugs as well, um, it is really, really a, uh, a crisis in this country. What, you know, as the administrator of DEA, yeah. What do you tell parents? How do they protect their kids? Yeah. And, and it's, it's evolution. It's constant changing, um, you know, from marketing and making it cool to, you know, just there's so many different aspects now that, that kids, you know, today deal with that, uh, that just seems to, to, to be growing with every generation. Um, and especially now, there's so much information out there. 
What advice can you give to parents? We spend, um, we're really, we're really so privileged to spend a lot of time with families who've lost loved ones. And one of the things, the first uh, summit we did with, with a number of families who'd lost loved ones, a mom came up to me and said, you know, she'd lost her son. And she said to me, I never thought it could happen to me. And it did. And that just struck home for me because it could happen to any of us. It yeah. could happen to any of us. And this is almost everyone I meet now is impacted in some way, a friend, a family member, someone in their community. So the most important thing we tell people is talk about it. We all have to be talking about it. And we're sending folks out every day. We're trying to help the families because they're going into schools across the country and they're having a really powerful impact. You know, I had a group of high school students come to DEA headquarters recently. And whenever I have students come, I always ask, how many of you have heard about fentanyl? And most of the time, maybe one or two people raise their hand. This was the first time every single kid in that room raised their hand. None of us can stop until that's the world we live in, where everyone knows fentanyl will kill you. It's being hidden. And we haven't talked about this, but it's being hidden in fake these fake pills. Six out of 10 of those, our lab tells us, are deadly. So the message for our kids is you cannot take one. There is no second chance. The other thing that the cartels are doing is they are hiding fentanyl in cocaine, in methamphetamine, in heroin. So everyone in America has to understand that just two milligrams, a tiny amount of fentanyl will kill you, and it is everywhere, and it's being hidden. So understanding that you know you may think your friend or you know a family member is handing you a pill, you cannot take that. And so the more conversations we think research is really clear, the more you open up to these conversations with your family, even if they're hard, the more that drug use goes down, the more that, that we can save lives. So, you know, one of the things we say all the time, talk about it. One pill can kill, you know, help your, your family members, your friends, people in your community, just understand the devastation we're seeing. And if you're in Virginia, come out to Arlington, you know, we've had a lot of people you know, a lot of people who've been personally impacted come to see the faces of Fentanyl Memorial, but we also have parents bringing their kids to just say, look at this. Like, yeah. and, and Pat, when you look at it, you see the faces of America, you see soldiers, you see people playing sports, you see parents holding babies. Like you just see people from your community. And it is, it is a really powerful moment to see this can happen to anyone. And right now the only way to make ourselves safe is one to defeat the cartels and two, to make sure everyone understands what's happening. So uh, DEA offers a lot of resources uh, from the education part to parents, also law enforcement as well. Somebody wants to uh, find out more information about DEA and those resources, how can they access it? So a couple of things. First, our website is DEA.gov. Um, we've also got offices across the United States. Find your local office. Um, there's 23 field divisions across the United States. You can call one of those field divisions and say, hey, who's in charge in, in my state? We'll connect. We are you know, always looking for partnerships on overdrive, which is our effort to reduce drug-related violence and drug poisonings. You know, if you know in your community who's the next shooter that's selling drugs, or you know who's selling the, or you think you know who's selling the fentanyl or meth that's killing Americans, call us, right? We want to do all this in partnership 
with you. And so really, you know, I think the more talking and the more meetings and conversations, it really makes a difference. And we're trying to build those bridges across the country. Well, thank you for joining us and, and sharing information with us. Uh, it just, it, this is a journey we all take together. It's affecting everyone. We all need to work together on it. Uh, put all differences aside. This is not a political issue. This is this is a people issue and one that we definitely need to, to, to wrap our arms around and work together to, to, to stop the damage that's being done. In Thank this you country. for the partnership. I, I appreciate uh, appreciate you come spend some time with us. And to our viewers and listeners back home. Uh, thank you for tuning in to the Blue View podcast, where we talk about the issues that are so vitally important to the men and women who suit up and show up every day and make a difference in their communities across America. Thank you. Be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere else you get your podcasts. To get the latest from the National FOP, make sure to follow us on Twitter and Facebook at GLFOP and on Instagram at FOP National. Thanks again. We'll see you next time.